0: Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Wanderings podcast. I am your host Pedro Bonato and I am a photographer and a musician. And I create artworks inspired by history, mythology and cultures from around the world. My goal with this show is to share the creativity of the people who have inspired my own journey and how they were able to bring their vision to life in the intersections of art, science and culture. In today's episode, we will explore an ancient astronomical device called the astrolabe. The astrolabe was used for centuries for navigation and as a way to tell the time before there were watches, satellites and phones. Astrolabes are objects of great beauty and craftsmanship. And they were the perfect combination of astronomical knowledge, artistic expression and practical application for everyday life. If you're familiar with my work, astrolabes were actually the inspiration of my first ever fine art photograph and you can hear a bit more about this on episode 10 of the podcast and on my vlog on YouTube. To talk about this object that connects sky and Earth, my guest is Pierre Paquette, an amateur astronomer with over 30 years of experience. He is an astronomy ambassador with the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada he is the editor of Astronomy Quebec magazine, and he works on a very cool project with the National Geographic, the first ever open-sky augmented reality planetarium in the world, located close to Montreal. Paquette discovered his passion for ancient astronomical instruments in 2014, and since then he has been making his own astrolabes. So here is my conversation with Pierre Paquette. Yeah, welcome to, to the show and thank you for being with me today. Thank you for inviting me. No, my pleasure. And uh, so the first thing like I think we should talk about is before we, we talk about your work specifically making astrolabes would be to give a general idea of what astrolabes are so that the people they're listening to can know more or less of what we're talking about.
1: Okay, um, I, I always like to say what they are but also what they are not. Uh, There seems to be a lot of uh, misconceptions about the astrolabes. So what they are is they're essentially, uh, well, first of all, there are two types of astrolabes, the mariner's astrolabe and the planispheric astrolabe. So the mariner's astrolabe is basically like a protractor with a ruler on it that you can turn to point at things and measure angles from the horizon. So that's can be made into a nice piece uh, that could be decorated but normally it's very bland and just straight to the point. The planispheric astrolabe uh, includes a basically a map of the stars that's mobile on top of that so you have two pieces of material it can be paper wood metal normally uh, we find them made of brass. And uh, so you have two pieces, uh, one plate uh, that holds the, uh, the other parts together. We call that the mater, uh, which is Latin for mother. So uh, this holds a, a, a grid of azimuths, which are left-right positions, and heights, uh, altitudes in the sky. And so up-down uh, angles, left-right and up-down angles. And on top of that, you have the moving piece, which is called the rete. Some Mm -hmm. people say the rete, R-E-T-E, which uh, this one has uh, pointers, like little points of metal or wood or whatever, but little points that point to stars. And this can move on top of the first plate. Um, So you move it according to the time it is, but it's not so much to know what you can see as to know what time it is from what you can see. So um, a lot of people have seen a planisphere. Uh, You can buy them in many bookstores, science stores, uh, which are basically a map of the stars. And on top of that, you have a clear plastic with a part that's shaded so that you cannot or can barely see through. And the the rest of the uh, piece of plastic is clear and you can see the stars. Mm -hmm. So that shows you what stars you can see at a certain moment. Well, the Astrolabe is basically the inverse of that. You set the stars that you see, and then from there, you figure out the time it is. Now, um, the main purpose of the Astrolabe is to tell time, yes, uh, from the stars, but you can also tell it from the sun. And what it's not is... A lot of people think that you can cast horoscopes with that and Mm -hmm. you can know the position of the moon and planets. It is not the case. The astrolabe only includes the movement or the apparent movement of the sun and the stars. And uh, there have also been uh, stories that it was used for uh, navigation. The Mariner's astrolabe has been used for navigation, but not the spheric astrolabe.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. Yeah, I heard uh, when I was, uh, because I'm absolutely fascinated about uh, astrolabes for, I don't know, like 10 years or so, even more. Um, What I heard was that they had like this, I don't know, like I think it's on the 7th century, uh, there was a writer in Baghdad that that, um, uh, listed like 700 different uh, uses for the astrolabe. But I assume these are all like things that would be inferred by whatever information you had on the basic asteroid by the fact that you know your time and your position right i assume that's sort of like what, what it would be
1: well that original writing has been lost it it included apparently like you said seven or maybe eight to hundred nine hundred maybe up to one thousand uh, users but yeah we can figure out that some of them are a little bit redundant i mean there's mm-hmm. only so much you can do with it and uh, I, I mean, it's like driving a car. Uh, basically, whether you own a Cadillac, a Mercedes, or a Lada, it's car. It gets you from point A to point B. You drive it. and So, yeah, you can have extras, but basically it tells time. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few um, religious uh, uses to the astrolabe, uh, mostly in Islam, but as well in uh, Christian religion to tell the time of prayers. But basically, it's telling the time.
0: Mm-hmm. One thing that I saw, I think it was on an astrolabe, actually the Aga Khan Museum here in, uh, in Toronto, where, where I am. Uh, I think, uh, like if I'm not mistaken, that also like you could tell time, but you could also like uh, tell when the sun would rise or like you would have some sort of information about that kind of uh, like, uh, like stuff too, like sort of like embedded in the, in the astrolabe as well.
1: Yes. Um, so the, uh, the part that I was uh, talking about, the mobile part, the RITI, mm-hmm.
0: um
1: this uh, includes a circle that we call the ecliptic. Now the ecliptic is basically the apparent path of the sun in the sky over a year. So um, if you, Uh, know where the sun is along the ecliptic, which the back of the astrolabe will tell you, you can set the Riti in a a way that the position of the sun on the ecliptic touches the horizon. So you see, right then, where the sun will rise along the horizon, because you have the line of azimuth, the left right uh, angle, and you can also tell the time with the use of the ruler that uh, you point through this point to the, uh, what we call the limb, the edge of the astrolabe, where you have basically a clock. Uh, well, I mean, power uh, graduations in, in hours. Mm-hmm. So yes, you can tell um, when the sun rises, when and where the sun rises, when and when the sun sets, how high the sun or any star will get in the, in the sky for a, a given day. Um, you can find out uh, at what time the dawn breaks, how long the day will last, um, and for, for the sun and for a star. So you can also know how long a certain star will be in the sky for a given day.
0: Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It's it's a lot of uh, things that it's able to do. And today we take sort of like those things for granted, or we don't even uh, pay much attention to it because of uh, like watches and uh, even today with the synced. Timekeeping devices like uh, phones and uh, computers that basically tell exactly the same time and you never get it wrong. Um, But I think uh, the astrolabe was used for like, for how long? For like 1500 years or something like that? Uh, We don't know exactly when it was invented and it probably was not invented in the same way that
1: it is now. Uh, There are some. Uh, ameliorations that were brought to it that we know more or less when they came so from let's say the earliest thing that we can call an astrolabe as it is now uh, that would be around the year 1000 and it finished being used probably in the late 17th 18th century so let's say seven or eight hundred years as it is mm-hmm. uh, as we know it uh, and earlier versions for maybe another three four five hundred years before that hmm. so how a were, long time
0: how were like because uh, actually uh that's one of the things whenever i'm researching about astrolabes is one thing i'm not really sure that the more let's say ancient astrolabes that were from ptolemaic times i assume because uh, apparently the flat astrolabe was Attributed to being created by Hypatia, but I don't know how accurate that information is. But what would be the difference between uh, the, like, let's say, this ancient astrolabes to this, let's say, quote unquote, more modern one from year a thousand?
1: Basically, uh, the oldest one that we found and that is still in one museum uh, dates from around the years of 900 or so, and it does not have all the lines on the uh, on the main plate on the matter. Uh, so you don't have the left, right, up, down angles. It only has the horizon and a bar, and to measure angles basically. So that evolved a lot over the next few hundred years, all thanks to the Muslim astronomers
0: mm-hmm. who
1: wanted to know more because they needed to to tell the time for their prayers and for. Uh, finding uh, the direction of Mecca. So they basically invented uh, spherical trigonometry, uh, basically before we, in Europe, we even knew about trigonometry. Mm -hmm. So we owe them a lot. And uh, so uh, Hypatia and Ptolemy, they probably knew an instrument that was maybe related to the ancestor of the astrolabe, but they did not have an astrolabe as we know them nowadays.
0: Mm-hmm. But they would be, um, from what I understand, uh, also using the same kinds of uh, projections, right? This, um, I forgot the name of the projection. I think it's like spherical, I forgot the name of the projection. The
1: stereographic Stereographic, projection. that's the one. Yeah. So so basically what the stereographic projection is, you have a, a sphere that is a, our representation of the sky because the sky looks like a sphere around us. and. You take one point on the sphere, by convention, the south pole of the sphere, and you project it in a straight line to the other side, so the north pole, and then you have a screen there, and you uh, project on that screen that touches the sphere. So any point of the sphere will be a point on the plane uh, that will become the astrolabe. So Hipparchus already knew about spherical projection or... If he did not call it like that, he had a hint of what it was. And they were already talking about similar stuff uh, between Hipparchus, uh, maybe two hundred years before the Common Era, and Ptolemy, which is about two hundred years after the common era. So you have a I would not say a gap, but you have a a, a span of time of three, four, five, six hundred years in which history is very blurry. And we don't know exactly who did what. And sadly, a lot of that was caused by the uh, burning of the uh, uh, library of Alexandria, which had uh, a lot of information. So uh, there, uh, there were probably some treatises about the astrolabe or similar things. The earliest treatise that we have still extant about the astrolabe as we know it uh, comes from uh, John Philoponus, and Philoponus sorry, um, and that from the years, uh, give or take six, seven hundred.
0: Okay. So mm-hmm. yeah, we
1: don't know exactly what happened before.
0: Mm-hmm. So it it probably like there would be some sort of um, device or at least a hint of the techniques used to to create the astrolabe, but then. Probably with the information that was saved up or that remained even in the Islamic world, right? Because they had a lot of uh, the Greek um, knowledge saved on their writings um, mm. after Islam, and then uh, probably something like that was was saved over time. Like uh, uh, I forgot the name of the of a, lo- a lot of the the works from I think even of, of algebra and like uh, and uh, geometry. Uh, they were like that were like. A, a, from Greek times they were actually saved up in like Baghdad and places like that. And then they were basically rediscovered, they reentered the Europe. but that's like, I think 13th century or or something like that. Yeah. um, uh, Yeah. Give
1: or take. I mean, uh, for a while there were uh, basically, uh, there was basically no scientific knowledge in Europe. Uh, And as you said, uh, the, uh, the Arabs and the Muslims kept the information, but it, came to them through something first of all greece mm-hmm. was less influenced by the by wars and everything that happened in the western part of europe mm-hmm. because as we know uh, the roman empire yes collapsed in 496 but that was the western part of the uh, roman empire so the eastern part the uh, what became called later the byzantine uh, uh, empire uh, mm-hmm. empire um, that survived and greece was part of it and eventually it became part of the ottoman empire uh, which greece was not exactly uh too involved well for a while yes but uh yes so the uh the information came through other people so for example john philoponus was born probably in, in alexandria and uh, the other treatise we have after that is from severus uh, who was a syrian so from greece it went to syria and then to arabia and it spread out through the rest of the muslim world and then eventually came back to europe
0: yeah it's yeah it's quite fascinating how it uh, traveled and uh, i even saw that there are uh, like not they're not asteroids they just probably use the same kind of a uh, projections even in buildings in the middle east and i think even all the way to india they have these buildings that are used to basically um, like map the sky and tell time and do all, all sorts of things uh, i i think uh, I think I wrote, it's Jumber I think is the name of the of the, the kinds of buildings. I, I just recently read about it when I went into my rabbit hole of uh, uh, reading about the astrolabe again. And uh, the, I thought it was kind of interesting to have like a, a full scale, like human uh, size representation of, uh, of the sky and to, to do something that is for I don't know thousands of years so difficult to do, which was to tell time.
1: Yeah, I had never heard about that before, but um, it, it brings up just after my presentation at the Aga Khan Museum, I bought a book there called uh, Astronomy and Astrology in the Islamic World. And there is an illustration inside that is basically uh, what you're talking about. It's uh, it's something that's maybe the height of two or three men. And you can actually see like uh, some guys on the upper floor and some guys on the lower floor, and they have a huge representation of the, uh, the ecliptic and the equator and the meridian and other things so yeah i can very well imagine that there would be such buildings
0: yeah i'm very curious to uh, i like i was like when i saw that i was like uh, i will wait a little bit until like i research into that i'll focus on the astrolabe for now but that, that's amazing one thing before we get into how you got into the work uh, the work of creating astrolabes and all your work specifically one thing i wanted to mention was that the astrolabe is also such a not only work of like science, engineering, and uh, all this knowledge combined in one uh, device, but also a work of usually great beauty in in art. Right? They have uh, like intricate details. They're made of brass, and they they have uh, a lot of care and craftsmanship in terms of uh, art, which makes it a quite unique object.
1: Oh, absolutely! And that's probably the thing that fascinated me and drew me to the astrolabes in the first part in the first time. And I would no doubt believe that it's what drew you as well, mm-hmm. to the astrolabe. Uh, so uh, an astrolabe is normally held by a ring uh, that's at its top. And from there, there's a little triangular piece that's called the throne. This is completely up to the uh, uh description what there is or is not on it. So normally, just that piece in itself is a piece of art. I've seen some with intricate sculptures of wolves and lions, people. Hmm. Uh, some with just flowers, some just engraved, some, some very plain. And then on the uh, on the matter itself, you don't have much room for artistic license, but the the Riti, the, the part that holds the pointers to the stars, you can do anything you want with it. There's a circle for the, for the ecliptic, and other than that, you have the pointers to the stars. So uh, you can make the pointers into the shape of... A flower, a leaf, uh, a tree, a lion. I have seen some astrolabes that instead of representing just a few stars, they represent the full constellation. So, for example, Gemini, well, you have two guys uh, mm-hmm. next to each other, just like the constellation Gemini, uh, and they are engraved in much detail in brass or gold or any other metal. It, it, some are just beautiful, and you look at them and you just go, wow.
0: Well, that's a, yeah that's a, I have to check them out one thing I'll have on the because it's an audio podcast I, w- I will have on show notes links to a lot of uh, astrolabes that people can uh, can check out and uh, before we get into your uh, your story um, the other thing that that I think it's important to mention the the materials with which it's made it's usually like brass but they would have wood and even paper ones right that people would would use.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the the only problem with paper is that normally it doesn't withstand the test of time. So if you had one, for example, in the year 500, well, it's rather unlikely that it would have survived up to now. But if you had one made of grass, well, chances are it resisted. It might have corroded, but it might still be uh, in a more or less recognizable form. So we can suppose that for each brass or gold or silver or name whatever metal you want, uh, astrolabe that was made, we can imagine that for each one of those, maybe tens of astrolabes were made of paper and they just did not survive the test of time. They burnt, they rotted, whatever, and they were lost forever. Uh, I have friends who have made their own astrolabes, but after in paper, But after a few years, what? They probably uh, said, oh, well, I'm not using it. So in the recycling bin, garbage can be. So sadly, metal ones last longer. So (laughs) thankfully.
0: Yeah, and it's something that is interesting to uh, to note is that it was, let's say, the computational device that people had for all that time, right? And uh, people would learn... If you, were, like, if you had a chance to go to school, you would learn how to use it, and then like, usually p- people today have not no idea that it even exists. Right? So it's interesting. Oh, how...
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the, well, the first three about the astrolabe in English was written by Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, Chaucer the famous uh, English poet. Uh, and it was addressed to little Lois, my son, hmm. who was probably, we presume at the time, was about 11, 12 years old. So Chaucer wrote a, a, a treaty on the Astrolabe to a 12-year-old in the year, what, uh, I think, uh, 1000 that he lived, or give or take, maybe 1,200. So I- imagine a kid nowadays, 12 years old, learning about the Astrolabe. I'm sorry, all the kids I know would be more <laughs> intense on playing Pokemon or something. I'm not right. saying that kids nowadays are stupid. On the contrary, they're, they know more than... A kid of the same age back then, but they use their knowledge differently. And that brings me back to what you were saying earlier that uh, nowadays people have no clue what an astrolabe is or how to use it and stuff like that. Um, People are so acquainted, uh, that's basically what you said. People are so used to uh, modern technology that we take it for granted and so on. Ask someone on the street what time it is without checking their watch or clock or anything nobody will be able to tell you what time it is. I mean, you would have a vague idea that, okay, last time I checked the time, it was three thirty. That was, I guess, maybe half an hour ago. So I guess it's around four. But other than that, people would have no clue how to tell time just like that. Whereas you can look at the sun, you can look at the position of the sun in the sky, and with the astrolabe to tell you exactly, I can tell time to the minute with my astrolabe.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite fantastic. And the other thing that, that, um, that the astrolabe as a device also, like, one of the things as I started, like, looking into it was this idea that you actually had to have some knowledge of astronomy and you had to be able to look at the stars, right? So you have to see, cause you have to point at the specific star, which you know. Which one it is, in order to actually use the device and then tell the time, right? So you would have to have to have some prior knowledge of at least observational astronomy to to take a look to to know to be able to use the the device to tell time, right?
1: Absolutely. So in the daytime, yes, you can use the sun, but at night you can use one of the stars that is uh, plotted on the on the rete. So like you said, yes, you need a basic astronomy knowledge to know what star is which one.
0: Yeah. And uh, so let's move to how you got into it. And uh, like, because I know you make astrolabes and uh, other ancient uh, astronomy uh, devices. So uh, can you tell a little bit about your journey into getting into the world of making astrolabes? I think it all
1: started maybe 35 years ago when I started doing astronomy um, in a very unofficial way back then uh, being just a kid and i think the second i learned about the astrolabe which i would not know exactly when that happened probably in the late 80s uh and i saw that i was just wow fascinated that's such a beautiful thing but the price tag scared me <laughs> uh, I, I come from a not very rich family so price tag is always important you know and uh uh, here in Quebec, we have a man who makes mariners, astrolabes or made back then, uh, and uh, armillary spheres, which is uh, basically a 3D representation. Uh, so you have a ball in the middle that's the Earth, and you have rings, normally made of metal, around it representing the equator, the ecliptic, and the poles and whatnot. And even those armillary spheres and the Mariner astronauts that he made uh, would have a price tag with a, a few zeros more mm. than what my wallet could afford. <laughs> so um, it, it always seemed just a fascination. And uh, recently, sadly, this man uh, who's still alive, but uh, he's getting older and his health uh, doesn't allow him to uh, to to work metal anymore. So he just stopped making them so my possibility for buying some from him just vanished anyway and around the same time actually slightly before i knew that uh, he was retiring i used to own a cabin and uh, my cabin was basically falling apart but i was still trying to trying to keep it alive like you would try to keep alive a cancer patient hmm. who's in terminal phase so eventually um i i sold it but uh, the little work that I had been doing on it was keeping me and my hands busy. So I was at home. and twilling twirling my thumbs. Yes, it's one thing to read and write and stuff like that. But I wanted to do something with my hands to make something. And one morning, I just woke up and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm going to make an astrolabe. And my girlfriend at the time was like, you're crazy or what? I said, no, no, I think it's possible. And we debated the for and again, the pros and cons. And okay, there were many cons, but I thought, you know, taking it easily and doing what I can, I'm not going to go too fancy, too overboard, but I'll do what I can
0: and whatever happens, happens. Well, sorry to interrupt, but just curious, what would be the 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 cons of making an astrolabe? It seems like a great project.
1: Uh, well, first of all, it's made of metal, so you need to work metal.
0: Right, right. I get it
1: where do you work metal when you live in a five and a half on the second floor?
0: <laughs> I get it. I get it. Uh, just so a mess of a uh, nice project. Room.
1: <laughs> exactly. I did not have any workshop or any room that I could use a, as a workshop, although I did use one of the rooms for a while, but, uh, yeah. So eventually, um, I had to stop my work on the Astrolade for a while because, um, One day, my ex's daughter ended up with a piece of metal in her eyelid, like not planted in the skin, just like loose. So they could remove it very easily with a Twizzler. And it could have happened at the park, playing at the park. uh, The doctor even told my ex, uh, you know, we don't know how it happened, but maybe playing at the park, uh, the wind blew that into her eye. Mm -hmm. But the finger was pointed on me. Like yes, you keep the the, the the door closed when you work on the Astrolabe and uh, you you sweep and uh, you vacuum. But maybe a piece of metal just threw out. So uh, I had to stop all work. So that would be one big
0: con. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, just I just just curious. So that that makes sense. The logistics of dealing with metal. Okay, but so no, just uh, sorry to interrupt. Just uh, please go on. So.
1: And add to that the fact that I never worked on metal in my life. I mean, I yeah, okay, I can cut a piece of metal with a with a with a saw, but that's one thing. And sculpting basically metal is something very different.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you woke up one day, you decided to start uh, to decided to, to, to that you wanted to make an astrolabe, and then you had little negotiation with your partner, and then and then what happened?
1: Well, then work started. Um, I uh, First of all, I had to look for materials, which was not easy. I thought I would just go to uh, Home Depot and buy a piece of brass there. Apparently, Home Depot and such stores, at least here in Quebec and apparently in Ontario either, uh, none of them sell pieces of brass. So I had to find a metal dealer. And um, so, yeah, I started working. I started trying to find ways to engrave it. Uh, The uh, learning curve was quite steep and I'm still at the very bottom of the engraving. Um, I would not call myself a metal engraver, just that I can engrave enough to make an astrolabe, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I just started working. And I kind of gave myself a um, a deadline in that I, at the local astronomy club, the uh, uh, Laval Amateur Astronomer Club, uh, just north of Montreal, of which I am a member, mm-hmm. I decided to give a talk at a specific date. I told them on that day, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a talk about uh, ancient uh, ancient uh, astronomical instruments. So, okay, we write it down uh, in the calendar. Uh, I think it was uh, May 20th, uh, 2015. Pierre is giving a talk about uh, ancient astronomical instruments. It was to be a surprise that at that talk, I would pop open uh, my briefcase and show them my astrolabe. So I had to finish by then.
0: You put a deadline for yourself. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. So I finished it with a piece. Uh, I, I made the RITI out of aluminum and very simple. I was never satisfied with it. But like I said, I had to stop working on it. So uh, the uh, final RITI in brass came much later. It's not quite finished even now. But at least my astrolabe was ready for the presentation and functional for the presentation, which uh, caused a lot of... Uh, surprise and fascination among the the present members
0: Mm -hmm. and you decided to go directly with the brass instead of trying to make first with wood or with paper how was that uh, process for you Um, I think I drew
1: a quick uh, plan if you want like a a, A sketch a a, sketch uh, first trial on paper and then realized okay you know I might as well just go uh, on metal so my first piece actually was not an astrolabe it's what we call a gunter's quadrant Mm -hmm. uh, which is basically an astrolabe folded in four Uh, so you have one quarter of a circle uh, basically like like a huge pie slice engraved with various uh, curves and lines and whatnot Uh, so i did that on a piece of aluminum and after that i'm like okay you know uh, i have a hint of how it will be to engrave properly on brass. So I took my piece of brass. I did a few tests on a scrap piece of brass. I'm like, okay, I'm satisfied. Let's go for it. And I never came back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I imagine working with metal, it's probably uh, something like fascinating working with your hands quite on its own. A very interesting journey besides knowing the technical uh, aspects of making an astrolabe.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it can be very infuriating, frustrating because it's slow. Um, and sometimes metal does not behave like you want it to behave, but it's fascinating. And the learning experience is like, okay, you know, I can do now something that I was not able to do before. I may never use it professionally. I will never say that I'm a metal engraver, but I, it adds to my personal baggage. And, um, mostly, uh, it's the satisfaction of my own work. Uh, for people who like doing things themselves, they will relate. And the fact that at the end, I see my astrolabe and I'm like, wow, maybe it's something very simple compared to professional pieces or antique pieces. But wow, I did that myself. And just the beauty of brass. Ugh, I, I love brass. Anything made of brass, I love
0: yeah it's uh, it's it's quite I saw on your website a couple of the the pieces that you made and it's it's quite fascinating to see. it's uh, we'll put links on on the show notes for for people to check it out. there are uh, I saw a version in English there is probably a version in French as well. One thing that I wanted to ask you about making the uh, making the astrolabe the plate part right which basically um, I think we mentioned in the beginning like it has the the read part has the plate and uh, the matter, which has the scales around. Uh, whenever people are going to see that on the on the website, it's going to be clearly shown there. It's very easy to find. But the coordinate part, I think from what I understand, unless you were using an aut- a nautical astrol- astrolabe that, ca- that it can be used on any latitude, longitude, but the other ones, th- they are more based on the sky of a specific place, right? So if you are in Egypt, it would work, but then if you go, I don't know, all the way to England, you'd have to use a different one. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. So like you said, the mariner's uh, astrolabe or the nautical astrolabe, it's only like a protractor, so you can use it anywhere. It's only to measure an angle between normally the horizon and whatever you're looking at. The uh, planispheric astrolabe or the plane astrolabe, you have the one I made, uh, I engraved the, the mater uh, directly. Uh, but normally you have placed inside of some kind of recess in the mater. Uh, uh, so basically the mater makes it uh, like hollow, uh, not hollow, but like a like a bowl, basically. Mm-hmm. So you put your plates inside and the plates are engraved for a given latitude. So for example, you would have a plate with the, the curves for latitude 30 degrees on one side. And on the back of that same plate, you would have the, the lines for latitude 32 degrees. And then you have another plate for 34 and 36, another plate for 38 and 40, and so on. Most astrolabes would come normally with four, five, six, maybe seven plates.
0: Oh, oh, okay.
1: And uh, it, it means engraving each one of them. Uh, fortunately, it's a very straightforward process that you can actually do with simple geometry you don't even need trigonometry although it helps now Mm -hmm. but uh, it's only curves and straight lines so you can do it with a protractor uh, with a compass and a straight edge or ruler so you don't need any specific instrument to engrave that and Normally, the plates are not those that are very fancily decorated. So, it, it saves some work from uh, for the astrolabist.
0: Oh, interesting. So, then the person would be able, basically, if they would go to like a certain distance and they knew how far away they were, they would basically be able to create their own plates and based on whatever they had before. Absolutely. Um,
1: so, you can either just choose from the ones you have, Or if you don't have the plate for your given location, um, when you know how the astronomy works, you can actually draw it rather easily.
0: Hmm. Well, that's uh the, I didn't know about that part. That's interesting. It's like make your own app for the for the astrolabe in a way like uh, that's that's quite that's, that's great. Basically,
1: and the process I explained it in just a few pages actually in a small booklet that I published on my website. It's called Secrets of the Astrolabe.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: people can download it for free as a PDF.
0: Oh, okay, great. Uh, yeah, we'll put links to all that on the on the show notes, and I I would highly recommend people to go and check out your work and see everything about the astrolabe. Because if you're into it because of the art, you will you get hooked. If you're into it because of the science, you get double hooked. And if you're into it because of the history and uh, religion, philosophy, all those things, it's uh, it's a remarkable device that gets uh, captures so much of our history. It's uh, it's quite fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, one thing that uh, that you did, uh, I saw on your website that uh, so you you made also this m- even more ancient uh, timekeeping device, the Egyptian uh, uh, merket. I think that's how you pronounce it.
1: Yeah, the uh, kh is something like coughing, so it's like merket or merket. something uh-huh. like that. I, I don't speak Arabic and mm-hmm. uh, ancient Egyptian even less. <laughs> uh, so basically, the merket is uh, it's a stick. And at one end of the stick, you have at a 90 degree angle, another piece of stick, like basically like your thumb up at the end of your arm. And uh, so you point the long part of the stick uh, towards the west in the morning and towards the east in the evening or, or in the afternoon. So the, the rationale behind that, uh, just to go back a little bit, is that um, every village had its own huge obelisk in the middle of the village uh for an example of the obelisk there's one in uh in paris at the uh concord uh, gardens um, that uh, they took from uh, luxor and so this obelisk is just basically like a huge tall stone or post uh it did not have to be made of uh stone and be engraved like that one in paris it could be just a a tall pole and people would tell time by the shadow cast from the pole. So when the shadow would be uh, in, uh, pointing to a certain rock on the ground, maybe uh, you knew that at that rock, it's time to uh, to go eat. Uh, mm. You know that when the shadow points to the other rock, your friend uh, Mehmet is waiting for you because uh, he has something to tell you. He wants to tell you uh, about his trip hunting or whatever. But the problem is People were not always living close enough to the uh, to the obelisk or the post or whatever, so that they could not see the shadow and where it was. So they owned a market and the market was maybe one foot long. The the long part of the stick and the uh, vertical part was maybe an inch, an inch and a half. So you would have it cast a shadow. Uh, The vertical part would cast a shadow on the long part and there were graduations on the long part a little bit like the equivalent of our hours Uh, if the shadow points on the first line then it's one o'clock on the second line it's two o'clock and so on of course they did not call it one two uh, o'clock and whatnot but it's basically the ancestor of uh, our timekeeping system so uh, let's say that uh, you and i uh, meet uh, at some point uh, in the let's say in the And uh, we talked together and, okay, uh, let's talk later. Um, Let's talk at uh, snake time. So that meant that on the marquette, there was a line engraved or painted with a snake next to it, a hieroglyph uh, drawing for whatever it meant. So, okay, you go your way, I go my way. And then checking my marquette once in a while, I, I see that, oh, the shadow approaches the snake. It's time to go meet Pedro. And you check your market at your place. And, oh, I see that the snake time approaches. It's time to go meet there. And then we reconvene uh, wherever we had decided. And using our market, we we were both on time oh,
0: wow.
1: it, it was basically like the ancestor of a portable watch
0: <laughs> that's amazing yeah and i, I didn't make the relationship with, um, with the obelisk that it had like a practical use that's uh it's so interesting and how was it for you to make the this uh this uh manhattan did you get it uh like some instructions on how to make it, you make it based on replicas or how was the process of making it
1: i saw one photograph i cannot exactly remember where uh, probably on wikipedia uh, of one market that was made of stone or it looks like maybe ivory or something it's a dark material that doesn't really doesn't look like wood or metal uh, so i would suppose some kind of stone and um, like basically it's just a stick with uh, another stick at 90 degrees uh, imagine a hockey stick but Instead of, what, uh, 120 degrees, it's 90 degrees.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's quite simple in principle. So I just took a, a piece of wood that I bought at uh, at uh, Home Depot that was uh, one inch square by uh, a few feet long. I cut it to a foot, a foot and a half maybe. And I cut the second part of maybe an inch, an inch and a half, and then just glued it on top uh, at one end. And that was it. Uh, I added the lines randomly, Uh, I painted and I actually engraved with a a, a dremel, I engraved some hieroglyphs uh, that I saw on the uh, same picture of that marquette, uh, that basically uh, they say that uh, this marquette was the property of whatever his name, son of whatever his name, guardian of the hours at whatever temple. I'm like, okay, you know, for once I know what some hieroglyphs mean, so... (laughs) I'll just brag about that, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I just I, I painted that, as, engraved it on my piece of wood, and that was it. It's very simple to make. I mean, aside from the airwaves that are completely useless on it, anybody can make one.
0: Oh wow, that's that's really that's really cool. And then, um, can you tell a little bit about your um, other work? Like, you are also uh, an like uh, astronomy ambassador with the Royal Astronomical Astronomical Society of Canada, right? And uh, editor of the uh, Aslami, uh, uh Quebec magazine. Uh, can you tell a little bit about your the, the other work that you're that you're working related to astronomy? Yes, if you allow me, I just found a
1: perfect uh, comparison for the Marquette. I think most people know about Lego blocks. Mm -hmm. Um, So imagine the Marquette as uh, one of those pieces of Lego that have eight or 10 dots, beads, whatever, long by only one wide, and at the end of one, you put the one by one block. Mm -hmm. So that's it. It looks like that, basically. Uh, So yes, coming uh, back to your question, I've been a member of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada for about 10 years now. And, um, because I always loved talking about astronomy. Uh, when I saw that they have a, uh, guest speaker, uh, exchange program, if you want, I just registered in it. And basically that made me an astronomy ambassador for the uh, RASC. And, uh, that, Brought me to Yukon uh, a few times. Um, I'm uh, at. Uh, I did my. Uh, I did three trips to the Yukon now. Um, they invited me at first for a uh, just to give a talk. So I said yes, of course, no problem. And then uh, between that the time that they invited me and the time that I actually went, they decided that it would not just be a, a one-off experience, but that they would make a star party. Week long star party. So they decided to do the first Yukon star party uh, in uh, October 2017. So uh, they invited me for that. I went, and uh, again, uh, by the time I got there, they said that uh, they would have a guest speaker, Phil Plate.
0: Uh, Phil Plate is uh,
1: known for being the bad astronomer. astronomer. He has a uh, very good blog on uh, misconceptions on astronomy and uh, and much more since then. Uh, so, okay, very enthusiastic. I'm gonna meet Phil Plate. He's a great guy, by the way. I met him uh, there, and uh, we kept in touch once in a while after. And uh, the the really nice thing that uh, the Yukon Group came up with is uh, they charter a Boeing 737. No, not the MAX 8, hmm. but uh, they charter a Boeing 737 from Whitehorse to the Polar Circle and back. So a three and a half, four hour flight oh. to view the northern lights from 37,000 feet up in the sky. It's a one one and a half time experience.
0: That was in 2017, you say? Uh, we did it in November 2017.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, that was, if you want, the test flight. And we did it again in February 2019. That was the first commercial flight. And we're doing the next one in January 2020, which will be the second commercial flight.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I'll put links on show notes about that if people are interested in uh, joining up. It's uh...
1: Yes, it's uh, something called the Aurora 360. So uh, I'm the uh, I'm a scientific advisor for that, and uh, in the 2020 we'll have a guest speaker uh, David Levy, mm-hmm. who is also very renowned. So that's for the Yukon, that's for the RESC, and uh, for my magazine Astronomy Quebec. So I talked earlier about uh, the uh, astronomy club I'm a, a member of in uh, Laval, just north of Montreal. Um, wow. They had their president there uh, was publishing a very sh- short book, and every. Week uh, by email to members, past members, and a few other people uh, about what's going on the, in the uh, in the club and a few other things like what to see in the sky and whatnot. not. And uh, in the I think that's 2012. He decided that uh, he's stopping it, and he pointed his finger at me and he said, "Pierre, you're you're a volunteer to continue it." <laughs> I'm like, okay. He <laughs> says, well, your French is very good. You, you write well. Uh, you never make uh, grammar or orthograph mistakes. Uh, so uh, of all the people, you should be the one uh, doing it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I started taking it over and changed uh, very slightly. So instead of every week, it was every second week. And then I started putting more and more effort into it. It was not just text. I added a few pictures. And I'm a graphic designer by profession. So mm-hmm. uh, eventually I started just laying out pages, making the PDF, and sending the PDF instead of just an email. And it grew and grew and grew. And I was calling it Nightwatch, uh, La Veille de Nuit in French. Mm-hmm. And um, at some point, one of our members uh, told me, he says, Pierre, what you do is magazine quality. It's great. Uh, If it was in a newsstand, I would buy it except for one thing. I'm like, what? It says the name. Just the name would not bring me to buy it. Hmm. Uh, He says, I would not even look at it. The name doesn't tell me anything. Nightwatch, what does it mean? But he says, if you put Astro something in it, so... Many years ago, there had been a magazine called Astronomy Quebec. Mm-hmm. So I just asked the owners if, with your permission, I would like to rename La Veille du Nuit into Astronomy Quebec, and they both said okay. And I got the name, and I kept doing it. And it became like I wouldn't say a full-grown magazine with uh, with less few editions and maybe forty pages. I had regular um, columnists. Uh, I would write a few articles myself. Um, It changed shape over time, like sometimes uh, in the beginning, I would put uh, a map of the stars, eventually I stopped putting it, um, what to see in the sky, that went away, came back, and so on. And uh, so people could download it for free uh, every month at first, and then eventually I did it every second month up to 2016 that I stopped because I found that uh, it was a little difficult to uh,
0: find articles and whatnot.
1: Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I'm. It's still in the back of my mind. It will come back at some point. I just don't know when.
0: Yeah, maybe something online too would be would be. Well, it was online. it was. Yeah, it was
1: online. It was never paper. Aside from people who printed it at home, there were never any copies printed of it. I printed a few copies for for my own use. Actually, I I have one that I got signed by maybe fifty people up to now. Uh, oh, that's great. Famous and less famous astronomers, mm. but i never published a paper edition of it so people could download it for free over the internet
0: mm-hmm. yeah uh, what i meant was more like uh like uh put it on like social media so people could share it and uh, make it uh, more available for for people eventually like with uh, having people contribute articles and stuff
1: well that's what it became eventually um i opened a facebook page for it just simply astronomy quebec and uh, the english part uh, as well astronomy quebec and, um, what happened is, uh, when I stopped the PDF, uh, publication, um, there was a hiatus of a few weeks or months. And then I started making video capsules, live video capsules every Monday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did that for maybe another two years. I stopped maybe a year or two ago, but every Monday night I would have a half an hour, an hour of uh, talking about astronomy and anything that we would Come to my mind about astronomy that
0: evening. No, oh, it's great. And, uh, mm.
1: Yeah, so that too I stopped a while back, but uh, it's still
0: it's still brewing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll get back to it and uh, even make it into a podcast. So <laughs> um, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very easy to, to do. Uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you that is, um, is sort of like related to. It's sort of like a more modern version of what happens with the astrolabe. I know that you you work on this, um, like an observatory that is uh, like has some augmented reality uh, elements to it, sort of like a planetarium thing. Uh, can you tell a little bit about this? At least that's what was on your bio, but I'm not. I was interested, but I didn't know much details about it.
1: Yes, uh, I'm uh, the uh, main uh, presenter at uh, Observatoire, uh, which could. Really translate to stargazing. Um, The official name in English is Night Sky Odyssey, and we have a partnership with National Geographic. So uh, we are National Geographic Night Sky Odyssey, or in French, National Geographic Observatoire. So we are based in uh, Sutton, just uh, southeast of Montreal, um, maybe an hour and a half from Montreal, an hour and a half from Quebec City, close to the U.S. border actually so close to the Vermont border that uh, our closest neighbor to the south is in Vermont. (laughs) And maybe, I would say, probably 7, 10 kilometers away. So the sky there is dark, very dark. Uh, We actually are the second, um, after the mont uh, Observatory and surrounding area, we're the second dark sky preserve in Quebec accredited by the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. The sky is super dark and we have a natural amphitheater sitting 184 people with heated seats. So if the temperature is not too nice, you turn on the heated seat and, well, at least your bum is not too cold.
0: Oh, wow. Hmm.
1: So we are the first in the world, first open air, open sky planetarium with augmented reality. So people sit there. They have a headset, we provide the headset, we provide a phone to put in it, and at the end of the presentation, people go home with the headset. Of course, we keep the phones, we cannot afford giving phones to everybody, but they keep the headset and under the headset, there's a code to download the app that we use and on your phone and put your phone in the headset wherever you are at home, at a friend's place or anywhere. Mm And view the same thing as you viewed at the uh, at the open air planetarium. So what we do is uh, the first part of the show is we uh, guide people through a visit, a 3D visit of the solar system. So it's a short movie, about ten minutes. Uh, we visit the solar system, one uh, planet by planet, sun and then the, the planets. And I'm in the front, or someone else when I'm not available. Uh, the presenter is in the front. And telling people what is specific about each planet uh, that's mercury it's so big and uh, so small and no air different and that and we move on to the next planet Venus the earth and so on and at the end of that the headset moves back to a uh, set back to a planetarium version uh, uh, planetarium mode sorry in which you see the stars and it's augmented reality so you can see through the headset the real sky or the real anything that you're looking at. So if you're in in your living room, you see the rest of your living room. So when you look at, for example, Jupiter in the sky, you see the real Jupiter through the headset, but it also says next to it, it says Jupiter. You turn your head and you look at the moon, it says moon. Okay, everybody knows it's the moon, but still. What's nice is when you look at the constellation, it says Sagittarius, and you have the drawing of Sagittarius. You put your head up you see hercules there it says hercules and you have the drawing of the mythical hero uh, upside down because that's how they represented it back then all uh, from drawings that were made by in the 17th century so for each constellation when you look at the constellation you see the drawing of the constellation you see its name and the presenter in front tells you the mythology behind the constellation why do we call it sagittarius What's the story? What did it do to deserve its own place in the sky? Uh, did it have friends or foes? Uh, why did people believe that? So all the mythology of twenty some constellation that you can see uh, in a given night, and of course at the end of the night, well, uh, people are there to see the stars, so we remove the headsets and we just enjoy the real sky, accompanied by comments and. Uh, uh, or something like that from the presenter in the front and of course we accept questions uh, at the end of the evening we do uh, one presentation every week from early June to uh, late October so Saturday night um, after uh, after the National Quebec Day uh, Saint-Jean-Baptiste, which is uh, June 24 so after June 24 we also do Tuesday nights and we will do uh, a few Sundays and maybe a few Fridays as well during the summer, depending on vacations and uh, holidays and whatnot. And um, last year we did what, uh, saying quickly, I would say maybe 35 presentations. Basically all of them were,
0: sold out oh wow that's uh that's amazing if people are ever that are listening to the show want to check it out we'll have shows uh, uh show notes and, and everything and that sounds quite quite fascinating because you know way we, we started uh, talking about this ancient uh device that was used to to tell time but it of course depended on your knowledge of the sky. And now we have this super advanced um, device that tells us the time instantly. And now it's being used to help to put us back in contact with the night sky, something that uh, could be considered to have been lost to a certain degree. So congratulations on that project. It looks, it sounds uh, fascinating to take people away for their phones for a while and use their phones as bait to the cosmos sounds like absolutely
1: it's a great idea that the uh, promoter of the uh, project had and uh, yeah Uh,
0: his name is uh, Jerry Fontana uh,
1: and uh, it's uh, observatoire.com it's uh, if you want to go, and if listeners want to go, uh, I would advise booking in advance. Mm-hmm. But uh, the demand for English is much less than for for French, so that's why we don't have more. I imagine. But if listeners keep calling and say, "Hey, I want English, I want English," maybe we'll do more in in the next issue.
0: Yeah, that's great. That uh, that sounds uh, that sounds like a great idea. Including one thing that I just thought, like it could be, have you ever? thought of uh, recording those presentations and do like a guided presentation that the person can see, maybe have the app after they go or something, then they can have new versions of it so that they can learn different things?
1: Well, there are recordings or there will be recordings done very soon. Oh, cool. Um, mm-hmm. because we will be selling the headset by itself in the United States. I'm not sure exactly how the distribution and whatnot will work, but uh, people will be able to buy the uh national geographic night sky odyssey headset uh, put their phone in it uh, download the app and look at the stars and uh hear the story of each constellation.
0: oh that's amazing huh cool yeah. uh you what's next for you in terms of the your work with creating the astrolabe and other ancient um devices uh what's next for you what are you planning to work on i don't know
1: the sky's the limit <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I well, first of all, I want to finish my first uh, complete brass astrolabe. I finished one the small one, but uh, the big one I want to finish. And I, I have this obsession that I want to do a replica of a real a old uh, astrolabe. Maybe not a 500-year-old one, but I don't know which one. I'll probably take one of the more simple ones.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: I want to make a replica of. An existing old astrolabe and just update it because stars moved in the sky since then. So I want to put it the, the stars in their today's place, but with the same look as the ancient astrolabe, and just have a my replica of an ancient astrolabe.
0: Oh wow, that's that's that sounds so like a it might great. it take uh... me a few years. Yeah, that sounds like uh that sounds like a great idea. And uh, so if people want to check out your work and where should I point them to?
1: Well, um so my main website is astronomy.quebec. Uh there's also astronomy.quebec. And for now there's slightly different versions, and there's also astrolabes. Dot astronomy dot Quebec. Uh, it works in both French and English spelling of astronomy. Mm-hmm. There's the Facebook page of Astronomy Quebec in both French and English. And um, yeah, uh, RASC.ca for the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, Astronomy in French, Laval.org for the Laval Club, and of course, Observatoire.com for um, the Planetarium in Sutton.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so, uh, Pierre, uh, really thank you for talking to me and giving some cool information about the, the Astrolabe. I'm very glad to connect with you and uh, hope to see you soon in, uh, when I visit Montreal.
1: Well, give me a buzz and I'll be happy to uh, go have uh, drinks with you or whatever.
0: Absolutely. Cool. So with that, that's the show. Yeah, <laughs> cool. So that's it for today's show. Thank you for listening to The Wanderings Podcast. You can find show notes and links at pedrobonato.com slash podcast. If you like the show, I would love if you could share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on all social media at pedrobonato. I would love to hear from you. You can find my photography work at pedrobonato.com. The music for the Wanderings podcast is provided by the Blue Dot Ensemble, a music and dance group exploring traditions from all over the planet, where I am one of the founders and the lead drummer. You can find us at bluedotensemble.com. So tune in next week for another show. Until then, I urge you to keep following your curiosity, and I'm looking forward to our next Wanderings together.